Welcome to On Being You, the show inspiring you with stories of success from people who have created success in their life and who share their journeys and most importantly, what it means to be you. Hear how they got to where they are, the choices they made, and tips on how to live a life you love. I truly believe you can design and live a life you love aligned to who you are. I'm your host, Susanna Kenyon Muir, life and career coach, a former nine to fiver who spent almost two decades in the corporate world. I love hearing a fascinating story and sharing that with you. So let's get started. Please welcome my next guest, Gita Sidhu-Rob. She's a serial entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Nosh Detox, a health and wellness company in the UK, a philanthropist, mom of five, and all around incredible woman. Hear how she navigated moving from Malawi and Sub-Saharan Africa as a young child to London and going from rags to riches and the hurdles that came with that and what advice she'd give her younger self. So let's get to the episode. Welcome, Gita. So good to see you. I'd love to hear from you to tell a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today, running a health and uh, wellness uh, company called Nosh Detox and many other things, including being a mother and um, of five children. So how do you do it all? And where did you start? You don't want to know a lot then. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we start with where you're from and where you grew up and we'll go from there. Um, Which, yeah, in some ways very relevant because of Malawi actually as well, isn't it? And microloan. I grew up in Malawi, so sub-Saharan Africa, which sounds so funny to say that, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm African in my core. And so I grew up, it, 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 you know, growing up in a place that I think isn't a city, growing up in a place that isn't um, Western, that yeah. is uh, built up, provides a completely different upbringing. And so I grew up in a place where I spent a lot of, it was, my father was a farmer, um, it had like we had like one frigging two main one main street two main streets in the town. I grew up in the you know and and it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. We didn't know this because you know it was our world. But I spent a lot of time alone, a lot of time alone. Um, and I think it's very interesting to look at my kids and who grew up in the middle of Chelsea in London, and you couldn't be more free and urban than that. Um, when I, when I, did you move to London? When on my fifteenth birthday, I came out to go to school. Wow. But I've moved. That must have been such a culture shock. Well, it wasn't because my father loved to travel. So we traveled all the time. So it wasn't. So like like I brought up my kids. We have traveled almost twice a year, every single year of their life. Yeah. They're incredibly traveled kids, you know. So I we were very traveled. My father used to take off because he was a farmer. He didn't work across our summers because it, you know, at, at home that was our winter. And so he, we would start, we, we would get in the car and drive. We drove across to Mozambique and took a ferry over to uh, Karachi and, and drove into Punjab from there. We drove down to South Africa and, and traded in the car to pick up a new car my father had ordered, which came by boat. 
by the way. No way. Um, we drove through borders where they would say, well, you can't drive through this border. And dad would be like, well, they're going to close the curfew and we'll be screwed because we'll have nowhere to sleep and we'll be in the middle of the bush. And there are like wild animals here. And so he drove through a border and they shot at the car, you know. And, and so these that's how I grew up. And it's so interesting to me that you can stand in places and I can look the way that I look or you can meet me. And like yesterday, I was giving a speech to like 80 women in a, in a law firm. And I don't know that you know those things about me, but they're a really core part of me because that's yeah. how I grew up. And I grew up making little mud bowls and wandering around my garden barefoot. I didn't, I honestly, such a heathen. I still can't wear shoes in the house. I hate shoes. I hate shoes uh, because I didn't grow up with any. I was like, we wore shoes to go to school. We came back and took them off. But that's a very Asian kind of tradition, oh, Eastern that. tradition, right? Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> I, Yeah. I, I always take my shoes off. I mean, I grew up in, in Singapore. I always, I find it weird wearing shoes in your house. Yeah, so, but we didn't wear shoes anywhere, right? We would walk okay. in and your feet, you were always one color and then your feet were black. Right. <laughs> your feet were just black <laughs> because you were in the garden and you were in the mud and you were doing whatever. Um, so it's kind of just how we were. And, and, and there was a tree that I kept pretending to try and climb, which I couldn't. But like, I remember when I was trying to learn how to drive, my father, because we had lots of cars, you know, my father had a big, massive garden. So my father would line up all the cars and you had to take out the middle one and get it back in without hitting the other cars. And that's how you learned how to drive. And, and so I learned how to park, reverse park before I could drive. We never reverse parked at home. There wasn't the need to. So just really stupid stuff like that and understanding seasons and growing up under a sky that just had sequins thrown on it. And that was what the stars were. And I've never seen skies like that since. Yeah. So that's kind of how that's how I grew up. I, um, and and so I think you... it forms who you are to such a large extent. Yeah, absolutely. And so you moved here then when you were 15. And um, you go to what, school. Was, what was school like here? What Horrendous. You... I hated every moment of it because um, we didn't understand comprehensive private schools because there was just the schools yeah. we went to at home and they were massively competitive. And so we had like you were in a year and you would have streaming. So it was A, B, C, D as a stream so mm. you did not want to end up in d particularly if you were indian because they shot you and then within a there was a1 and a2 and so i spent all my time in a1 because no one would accept anything less not because i was the brightest but in my home if i came on with anything else somebody would have really been upset and were upset so i didn't meet normal people i don't think on any level because mm there was just this pushing, driven ambition, more, more, more. And I came out here and I went to a local comprehensive in Ealing um, for, for, you know, my first year here. And it was horrendous. I didn't understand them. They had no idea. It was literally like being an alien dropped into, I, I didn't understand that people had, I didn't understand what a mortgage was. I was like, so people don't own their own homes. What do you do? How do you not own, how does that, you know, none of it made sense. None of it made sense. People didn't buy vegetables. They didn't eat vegetables. I did, nothing made sense. Nothing. It was awful. I absolutely, it took me the first, then I went to a boarding school after that, which was worse, but at least the kind of people that I met were kind of not, not, it wasn't even a socioeconomic thing. It was an achievement thing. They were the kind of people like me. They were trying to do, there were people I found there that were still educationally trying to do the same things I was. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't understand the social mores at all. I didn't get it. I did not. Oh, my God, Suzanne, it was so awful. It took me years, 
years. I was out of big step, 100%. How do you feel like that that period in your life has influenced or impacted you as a person today? I think that it was, um, (laughs) I mean, it was very painful um, while I was doing it. But I think that was it. Was it cultural? Was it the yes. the the shock of the difference of culture, or was it that bullying? Was it what was it? That oh, was I thought horrendous. they should me because I was just peculiar. Um, but to them, but what was really helpful is that I I had a really strong sense of who I was because you can't spend all that time alone and not have that sense. And yeah. the only thing I could do was read, so I speed read from a really young age. I had read every book in our house by the time I was 10 and there were some books I should just never have read. And my father had a very strong sense. We grew up very religious, I'm Sikh. And there was this huge, really strong sense of the value of who you were as a person. So I always have had, and it stood me in very good stead as a coach because it ultimately translated into me being able to say to people, no, 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 that's wrong and this is right. And there's not really a problem understanding that. And so I had a, I've, I've always had a very strong sense of self. And I think that gave me that. But I have to say it was horrendously painful as an experience. Yeah. And I think so many children actually go through such horrible sort of experiences in their in sort of school, their formative years. But you learn so much through that. And so it's it's interesting to hear, you know, what your experience was. So you then went on to study law. Was that what oh, yeah, you that was not wanted to do? No, hell no. My okay. parents, I always make a joke, like the first line of every speech I ever make says, my choices were doctor, lawyer, accountant, death or marriage. And I, I you remember know, that. <laughs> didn't like blood, don't like numbers. Um, and so I went for words, right? Um, but no, my father wanted one of us to, because my father was the youngest son of a landowning upper class family so the eldest son kind of inherited all this stuff so my father's job was to then go into the army and do a business and do whatever the hell he was doing and so he loved had this intensely educational mind but couldn't get an education and so you know started working when he was very very young Uh, whereas my mother was fortunate enough to actually educate herself quite high and my father just always wanted that for us um and so it, he pushed and pushed and pushed and none of us was going to ever become a doctor so we both became lawyers my brother and I I hated it absolutely couldn't bear it how long did you study law for and did you practice it, studying. it was the practicing I didn't like right um I was fine studying law it was you know being studying doing a law degree was incredibly helpful it was a um it created such great and I'm, I'm really good at reading shit tons of boring turgid mind-numbing information and extracting horrendous to me and extracting (laughs) all the details I need yeah but it would never have it really helped me become the health expert that I am because what I do now as a job is all based on those skills Mm. so I loved the degree I had no problem with the with the studying I actually enjoyed studying I was very good at it I liked it but if I hadn't done all that, now when I put together information that really helps women, for example, in perimenopause, what I'm because there's so little information, what I do is I go and I research it all, and then I link this plus this plus this plus this, and I'm like, oh my god, that's how that works. And then I'll be like, here, learn this. This will help you. And that information comes because I I, I was a lawyer. I studied. Uh, I had a law degree. In fact, I have a master's in law. That's so, it's so interesting to hear because I think so many people study 
and then something at university and then never use it. And it's just like a waste, but it sounds like you've, even though you didn't like practicing it, you got a lot out of it in how you use it in your daily life. I use work. my law degree, I promise you, in every single part of my everyday life. It's just weird. Who would have thought it? Amazing. Well, if I need legal advice, I'm coming to you. Well, that I don't know about. <laughs> or what, yeah. what I'm good at is the patterns, because that's what yeah. they taught us, because that's what you have to do, right? So it's looking at the evidence, it's understanding the patterns, like what's the decision making. So I get to I get to link patterns in my brain and analyze information very effectively, very quickly, mm. because it's what I'm trained to do. And I sort of never thought of it that way, but that's exactly what, what I was doing because when you do the degree, then we you do a one-year um, uh, professional uh, course. I don't know if you do this anymore, but one-year professional exams, which had the highest failure rate in the bloody world. They had like a 70%, 60% failure rate. It was horrendous. Wow. And then I did a master's um, in international finance law. And so all of Because that- you wanted to? The masters I wanted to. Okay. Um, and I was already in law. So I was like, well, I may as well do something. Yeah. And that was interesting. And I always wanted to be in corporate law, but it wasn't what my specialization was. Um, and so the, I, I always liked the studying. It was just working as a lawyer. I didn't like. So you then went from uh, studying to practicing law for how long? I'm trying to think because I got married at that around then as well. I was super young. I was about 24. And so I was also working as a lawyer. But I moved into like I like the people, not the paper. Right. I was gonna ask you, what did you not like about that versus studying it? I the paperwork. I just enjoyed the people thing. So I I I, I moved into a place of kind of negotiating things as quickly as I could because I didn't know corporate negotiating was a thing, but it was the thing I loved. It's absolutely the thing I really love. And I think I feel like coaching is frequently just a different version of that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and being able to get people across the table to the same place where they're agreeing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. That uh, that to me is my idea of sheer entertainment and to get paid for it, it's a bonus. Well, it's good that you, you've been able to make that linkage and then do that in coaching. Oh yeah, but let me tell you, it took- because <laughs> it's because I started coaching by accident and I coach celebrities and celebrities are not normal people on any level. <laughs> Oh, they're just not normal and i so really hope time, people listen to this <laughs> i said i hope they listen to this <laughs> <laughs> celebrities are not normal so these clients were coming in and we were very lucky when i set up nosh that gwyneth paltrow was a, like a really early champion of ours and that's she put us on the map because she recommended us god bless the woman forever and ever so all the people that came in were her friends and they each had a more illustrious name than the one before and i'm I, that doesn't phase me so much because my parents were quite well known growing up so I didn't really, the celebrity part, I don't care about. So that's the other reason they would come in. Because if you don't care, you're a bit of a safe place for them to be. But they're just not normal. And so when someone never says no to you, it changes who you are. It just changes who you are. Mm. So when you're in a place where you're trying to say to somebody, and you've coached with me, so I'm quite a blunt coach. And so I'll be like, well, no, da 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 So I have a client who I just spoke to who said, well, I was talking to my, I'm trying to explain to her about how to have a more feminine approach because she's the founder of a business. And she said, well, I I was like, your husband's there to love and provide for you, but you can't provide if you can't receive. And being receptive is a feminine 
value. And she goes, oh, so I, I was really upset with him because he went out and got drunk and woke up really late. So I decided to receive and I told him he had to buy me these Gucci shoes. And I'm like, um, that, that, uh, I was like, that's a little transactional. It wasn't quite what I had in mind, what I was hoping for. But, you know, there's a place there. So you, now, if that person was famous, they'd have been bought a house or a plane or a something by another famous or rich person. So you're having this really intense conversation. And so what negotiating taught me, <clears throat> it's like a flower. It's honestly, it's like a flower. That's how I see it. So you go in and you say something and they go, no, and you come back out and then you come out from another angle and you go, well, it's like this, da, 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 da. And they're like, uh, no, but this doesn't work. You're like, okay, then you come back out and then you come in at another angle. And I didn't, I used to do it subconsciously, and then I actually now do it very consciously. And I'm like, okay, I'll try. And then I go and I do another petal. And then, I, then I'll come in. And then by the, by the last sort of petal, they've kind of got it because you've unpacked the idea enough that they can receive it. But it's really it takes a lot of delicacy because you can't say, well, yeah, that's well, then I invented the stupid tax. So that was a What's oh. the stupid tax? <laughs> I'm like, you know, if you annoy me enough, about something, I'm going to charge a stupid tax. And honestly, it's this thing of literally, no, like we've had this conversation and there's now a stupid tax. So actually my stupid tax starts saying things like, well, that's fine. Can I give you back your money? And then I'll charge you double for the next session. And that's my stupid tax. So I haven't quite actually charged anyone yet. Is that an incentive so that they don't be stupid? Yes. Okay, that's not a bad deterrent almost sadly no one's ever got that yet they usually get it really quickly by the time i threaten stupid tax but it is it is a different way to operate like i have a client who is the second third richest man in the continent that he lives in which i can't tell you because then you know who he is um and he he was so impossible because it was like literally hitting a brick frigging wall so i got him to buy me those little rice uh balls you know they're filled with rice and you put, and I used to like an arancini. No, no, no. Like, like they're uh, you have them in gyms. Like oh, the protein, like the little protein ball thingies. No, no, no. They've got leather, and they're sewn like mini fo- soft footballs, and they have rice filled in them. Oh, you don't eat it. No, it's not, <laughs> not arancini, but I do like arancini. And so I, I got one of my clients because he because because I couldn't get him to hear the things I was saying because he didn't want to hear them. It's different when someone's not getting, right? I'm talking about deep, obsolete stubbornness at this stage. And it's like, well, why did you come for the coaching if you're going to be stubborn about it? And so I got him to buy me these. And I'm like, could you do me a favor and buy these and bring them? And then we'd be having conversations, not throw them at him. (laughs) He wasn't listening. I'd be like, no, stop there a moment. And I'd like fling a ball at him. And he'd be like, what was that for? Because you've got to get to a place where people trust you. you if you do what people are doing all the time, they can't hear you. And they've come in to change. They've, I don't do this sort of thing with everybody. You know I never did any of this with you. Um, Lucky me. <laughs> yeah, there's, no one's ever going to work with me again. It's this thing that when people can't hear you, you've got to disrupt the pattern somehow. And so you do something massively disruptive. Like no one has ever thrown little rice balls at him. And so it made him stop and think about why this perfectly normal person was throwing rice balls at him and then he had to stop and think okay if I threw the ball at him it was his problem and he had to hold it until he worked out what the problem was I like that because you're bringing like a physical with like a mental kind of connection and it's so different that he 
is going to remember that, right? Not only have you hit him in the face, but he's like, okay, let's prevent that from happening again. And that's a memorable experience. So is the stupid box. Because when you're very famous or royal, nobody calls you stupid. Mm. And so I'm not calling you stupid. It's a stupid tax Mm. kind of thing. So, you know, so there's a place. I mean, obviously, you have to know your client quite well by the time you say this sort of stuff. You can't do it session one. (laughs) They might not come back. They will never come back and they'll want their money back. Um, And also you won't help them because ultimately it's about helping them. So the stupid tax, it makes people kind of laugh. And then you bypass the stubbornness because it has a purpose to it. It, Because when you can laugh at something, the sheer unfairness of a stupid tax, I'm like, no, I'm charging you more because you're you're an idiot. That's just not fair. (laughs) So the sheer unfairness of what I'm saying makes someone laugh. And then you get to slip in the thought behind the laugh. So it has it has a lot of weight behind it, mm. but I, I but but I I I make it amusing. So you've obviously just talked about coaching, which I want to go back to in a second. But how did you get from being a lawyer to what was your next step, and like what made you want to leave being a lawyer? Everything, <laughs> except for the negotiating. <laughs> yeah, it was a series of tragedies and 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 traumas, really. Um, that so I, my first child was very very ill. He was um, he was allergic to an injection he was given, and he ended up being anaphylactic and asthmatic. And so there was always and, and he had eczema. So it was a choice every night of not sleeping because he couldn't breathe or not sleeping because he was scratching himself to death. And I just didn't sleep for about three and a half years trying to get to grips with this. And they were like, there's no there's no cure. There's no solution. There's no cure. There's no cure. And I was like, this is just ridiculous. There must be a cure. And um, he had cardiorespiratory arrest. He died. He was uh, he was dead for a while. They resuscitated him. Then he went straight into a coma. So we didn't know if it had affected his brain. And I'm like still in my early in my mid twenties. This is just like a really shit place to be. Um, and and I was alone because my my son's father wouldn't come out because his mother said it was because my blood was bad that the child was sick. My mother wouldn't come out because she was like, well, your husband should be there. Why the fuck should I be there? It's his job to look after you. And I I was alone. And I was this pawn in between these two people. And it was just, I slept on the hospital floor for for however long that took. Um, And then when when he came out of there, I, I kind of got him, it took me another four or five years and I cured him completely. I wrote a book about it. I started talking about it because, because other women were struggling and there was no one helping them. There was no one telling them this is a problem. They, they kept saying things like, women just say that. And it's like, bitch, have you listened to us? Maybe we're right. Um, and then I had two more kids. Um, <clears throat> I was still working as a lawyer and I ended up walking out of my, walking out on my husband because it was a very bad marriage. Um, and we had built this big, very wealthy business in the time I was married to him. But when I left, I was like, I can't take it anymore, kind of walked out. And there was three kids under the age of seven and the youngest was still in nappies. And I remember this because I was holding a bag of nappies and the baby and the other two children were holding my dress and each other. And and we, I thought I had like 200 quid and like four credit cards and you know a private plane. And I was kind of like, oh, it's fine. I'll just find somewhere to stay for the night. I didn't quite anticipate him emptying every single bank account, closing every single credit card because we had made the money together. And I was like, you know, sense of fairness, if nothing else. And, and it turned out that had nothing to do with anything. So um, 
my next door neighbors just gave me the afternoon to I was like can we just and she was like yeah um and we lived in this incredible neighborhood so they owned like a formula one team and everything and we were kind of sitting in their As house <laughs> well it was my neighbor right and we had this massive house uh this millions of pounds worth of house um and I was just watching everything stop he just emptied everything around and then emptied every, every credit card and I had nowhere to go, nothing to go with, 200 quid staying in someone's house. I didn't really know that that well. Um, and my mother uh, locked up my her apartment and left town because she said, you know, go back to him. Um, you'll thank me for this one day. And I was like, I don't think so. I'm just, the reason I left is I'm never going back um, because it was so terrible. And I wasn't, we weren't safe. You know, we just weren't safe. So we left. And a girlfriend took me in, uh, gave me a room in her house. Uh, and that's quite a big deal, taking in a woman with three small children. And so the kids slept. Uh, my two older children slept on the bed. The baby, we had a little pallet on the floor made up for her because <clears throat> she was a year old. And I slept on sofa cushions on the floor. And, you know, so it's quite, you know, it was interesting. We went from my, you know, eight bedroom, 10 bathroom, swimming pool house um uh with my plane and I had a Ferrari with a roof and I had a Ferrari without a roof and I had my home in Monaco um and then he bankrupted me uh because the lease of our office building was in my name mm. um because he couldn't get a lease he had no credit rating and I didn't know what credit ratings were because I've never had a problem with it so he bankrupted me as well so and then I lost my job because of it because you can't not much call for bankrupt corporate lawyers um, and I was kind of there with nothing. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, what do we do and how do we eat? And I had like 14 pounds by this time. Um, and my lovely friend, whose poor husband must have just wanted to murder us on a daily basis. Can you imagine how awful? And we, I was like, we're just going to try to stay out of the man's way. And if he can't see us, maybe he won't hate us. <laughs> they were so kind. She was very kind. He really allowed it. So he was kind, but she, she really fought for us. Wow. She wasn't even related to me. She yeah. was just my friend. Um, and so that was amazing. And so then, so that was a hop, skip and a jump. And then I ended up, when people were like, I was like, I just need to make money. And the only way I knew how to make money was to be media because I had done a lot of it at that stage. Um, I'm trying to think. I was like, this, I was even my, uh, 31, 32. Uh, it just, just, I really just wasn't that old. I, you don't know that at the time, but I look back and I feel so sorry for her. Um, so I did a lot of work because I wanted to keep the kids in school. They were in a private school and I had taken away their home. I had taken away their surroundings. I had taken away their life. Um, I taken away every, and, and the world that we live in, the amount of abuse I got for leaving the wealth. Mm. And I was like, I, I, I'm not staying here for this, for anyone else. It's for me. And then I was like, well, they were like, well, if you're not going to stay for it, then you should just disappear so we don't see you because you're like really uncomfortable. And I came under immense pressure to go away. Immense. They're like, they'll get you a council flat, take the kids and pull them out of school. So you don't, you know, the reality didn't hit. Who is that pressure coming from? Everyone. Like family oh. and friends. Oh, my fa well, my family was was my mother who had disappeared. Um, but she definitely put me under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, she had an empty flat. She locked the door on and left. So just so we're clear. And went to another country. <laughs> uh, but friends as well, mothers at school, they were just like, and these are really wealthy people. Mm. 
that were my friends, the people I knew, not my friends, obviously, but people. I look at this now and I look at women in, and I'm the first to offer a hand of money, of everything, you know. And so it was, well, that was interesting. And I was like, you know what? Um, what do I know how to do? So I did a bit of TV because I had, they would pay, they would be like, Gita, will you? I'm like, yes, how much? <laughs> They're like, do you want to know? I'm like, I don't give a shit. Just give me the money. I'll do it. And the only thing I would not do is have a relationship with a wealthy man. That was the only line I drew in the sand because that would have been too easy to just slide back in mm. to a life that I just was not sure would not be as bad as the one I had left. And so that was the, and then I was, what was like, I don't know, I can't keep the kids in private school. I have no money. Why would I be doing this? This is so stupid. And then God bless my ex because he came to pick up the kids in his Rolex watch that I had gifted him wearing, driving the Bentley I had paid for and said, well, you know, if you want to keep the kids in school, you just have to come back to me and I'll take care of it all. And I thought, oh my God, you absolute freaking asshole. And it was just perfect. Had he not been such an asshole and so patronizing and so condescending with my money, I, I might have caved somewhere. And I just was like, no, I will not. And I was like, I will not only succeed, but I will succeed with private school Chanel, Balenciaga and everything else and screw you. So that was helpful. So that was like a pivotal moment then, like Massive. a defining moment. That was yeah, it was very pivotal. The second pivotal moment was that I knew that there had been so many signs leading up to this that I ignored. And that was the next pivotal moment. I put a flag in the ground and I said, never again. And I said to whoever's out there listening to this, because I grew up with a, with a very clear relationship with God, but I hadn't quite understood like a universe and a spiritual kind of relationship. And I was like, so whoever's out there, because I wasn't feeling very charitable about God at the time. Um, listen to this, never again. I will always listen to every signal that I am ever given at any stage. And if I'm not listening, you feel free to tell me about it. Um, and, 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 and yeah, that was the second pivotal moment. <laughs> they came close. Then the third thing I did was that because I had nothing, I mean, you know, as a bankrupt, you can't rent an apartment. You can't, you, even if I was earning money. So what I did was I immediately went back to corporate negotiating and people would come in and go, Gita, my God, there's no work, babe. But if you could, it was really stupid things. Like there was a guy who wanted a dry cleaners around the corner and couldn't get the council to let him get the dry cleaning license. And I was like, I can do that. So I was like, how much will you pay me? And he said 500 pounds. And that was like half a term school fees or something. So of course I got him the dry cleaning license. It took me like, that was just like, no is not an option. And then somebody else said, I need some telecom spectrum in Rwanda. Can you do that? I'm like, absolutely. And I had to go home and look up telecom spectrum because I did not know what that was. I knew what a telecom was, but I did not know what a spectrum was. I pretty much sure didn't know where Rwanda was. I was like, well, that's fine, of course. And then I ended up in front of the telecoms minister in Rwanda. Um, and I got them their telecom spectrum. And then somebody else said they wanted a... Uh, to list a pharmaceutical in uh, Saudi Arabia um, because they wanted to sell it and they didn't know how to do that. And I was in Saudi in a friggin' Abaya going. And everybody thought I was the maid because everybody Indian were the cleaners. And there I was. So I was like, uh, yeah, no, no, not quite. I was like, all right, how do I do this? And then I was like, well, the fastest way to do this is because I have to go home to the kids, right? 
And the fastest way to do it was... This whole time you're still staying with your friend? Oh, no, that was it. Then that that job, the Saudi job, the company said, da-da-da-da, and we'll pay you monthly. And I was like, okay, because I stayed there for six months. I mean, that was a long frigging time. Wow. At your friend's? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long time. So they, I said, look, I'll take a cut in the salary if you will put in a house with a lease. Um, tell me, you know, just, just how much you're going to pay me this much. I'm like, great. And I put a chunk of that towards rent and they took out a lease on a house, which was this big. Um, I remember leaning Oh, it was awful. They just dropped off all the furniture, like all my boxes. And, and I was trying to move these boxes and I would have to wait for everyone to fall asleep for me to be able to unpack boxes. And I couldn't move anything because it was so heavy. I have this deep memory of me leaning against a wall, trying to push a box with my feet and the box wouldn't move. And I didn't know what to do. And I was just in tears thinking, I just don't know how to move this box. I mean, um, that and must so have I- just been like the, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Like yeah, the there were a few. Yeah, it, it was just just the sense of this sheer aloneness and responsibility for these three small kids, one of whom was just still dying, like not quite. He wasn't because he was really cured, but he had really extreme episodes where something new would pop up because his immune system was so compromised, you know. And then you have two more little ones and then they were little girls. And so you were like, well, I can't bring another man into the house because I don't want to, you know, you, you're afraid for your children and things. And I didn't know the right thing to do. So I just kept doing what I was doing. And then the Saudi one, I got them to reverse that into a listed company, a company listed in Saudi and get that license through the pharmaceutical. And then that was the turning point. Um, Because that suddenly made me think, oh, I can do this. Okay. But it was not, it was a lot of money, uh, but it wasn't regular money. Mm. You know, and so that's when I negotiated that into a monthly salary and then the house came and then everything else. But that was corporate negotiating. I did that. That paid me shit tons of money for about two years. And then I thought, I really need to build something. I can't just do this. I have to be at home. I have to build something. I'm the only parent these kids have. Um, And that's when I thought, what do I know how to do? And I was like, well, all right. I know how to do a health business because I've cured you so and and it literally was like that and I was like all right my fun my son couldn't eat anything he was allergic to dairy gluten fish egg nuts and sesame so I was like you can't be the only person with an allergy so I set up a business delivering allergy-free food and we were the first company in the United Kingdom that did that it was 2008. Did you figure out um did you heal him through figuring that all out and then setting up the business around that or what kind of came first? Yeah, no, I fixed him first and then I did the food. Okay. Amazing. Um, what a nice way to kind of like build a business around helping your son and he's okay. He's remotely grateful, but yes, (laughs) (laughs) probably doesn't remember it. Yeah. No, no, it was, it was really rough for him. So yeah, he remembers, but yeah. No, it. Um... And so 2008 is when you started Nosh Detox. And um, it was. Well, I tested it in for the year of 2007. And yeah. I was like, if I can make money out of this, I'll stop doing the traveling and I'll stay and do just this. And then 2007, it was making money. And I was like, oh, okay. So then 2008, I stopped doing everything else and I just did Nosh. Right. And you deliver now where it's evolved to. So what, what was it back then and where is it now because I know you do 
juices and juice fasts and meals and um you also had a shop where you were deliver um, where you could buy like supplements and things like that which I remember going to and the vitamin drips yep so we sort of do almost we 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 restrict because of the cost of food and the way the staffing crisis is going because you know yay brexit idiot <laughs> um i we, we let me just that thing that, let me just put that thing in there so we have a shop in um in in Fulham and it's a juice bar and we've rest- because food is so expensive we've cut down only a certain one line of food and then everything else is juices and we have um our our IV clinic we're setting up um so the supplements we used to make then were because we put them through supermarkets and stuff and now we're creating a perimenopause range that is going to be through our shop and then we'll do it through TikTok and everything else but more online we live and learn right so in those days it was all through shops and it was so painful because they take such a high percent and now I'm like no no, no. my shop and only online I'm smiling because I I didn't mention but that you uh do a lot of your social media now on TikTok and you've become a little TikTok uh insta not insta famous TikTok famous what do you call it TikToker a TikToker can you forget who would have thought uh, at my age, on top of that, the funniest thing is, is that we just have to lie to my son because he can't handle it. So we don't tell him these things. He doesn't and know. He, he, I, I don't think so. I mean, like literally lie. And the girls are kind of okay with it, but they don't quite get it. And then, then everyone's, then one of the, one of my youngest ones was at her best friend's house and heard my voice coming from her older sister's phone and was like, what I and, and went around she because yeah this woman's amazing she talks about weight loss and this and this my my sister my my youngest daughter's looking at her going oh my god and she went is this your mother you've got and and that's how my daughter worked out that I was doing quite a lot on TikTok I mean it's it's one of those things that's just ridiculous but I absolutely love it it's the most rewarding thing thing is it's like this so if you spent within four minutes with me I will have said the word fuck at least once I will have been rude I will have been obstreperous and I I, I'm regularly like that and when I go on tv and things I, I I can't do any of that because the BBC had a word with me about 20 years ago and explained exactly and I was like nope no no so I don't swear on air and I don't swear on radio and I don't do any of those things and I follow broadcasting rules and all that stuff but in fact the thing with tick and then Instagram it's all pretty and I'm just not a pretty type I, I, I don't get it I don't like making things look perfect so I can take a photograph I don't give a shit I truly give zero shits about how perfect something looks. So Instagram isn't really that place either. But what I enjoy is the communicating and the, and I'm really good on video because we're good. Yeah, I'm me. I've just been doing it. So, I mean, honestly, I've done, when you think about it, this has been my entire adult life. And there have been some really frighteningly scary things that I've done, like speak to a million people or be on political programs and do news night and terrifying things. So this is fun. This is easy. This is entertainment. And I get to go on TikTok and be me and just say, this is bullshit. And so TikTok, I love it. And the fastest growing demographic on TikTok is 40 to 55 year olds. And those are my people. That's amazing. And so you you talk on TikTok about perimenopause, health and health related issues, or is it just menopause, perimenopause? No, no, women. I talk about I talk about strength. I, I, I always talk about strength and power for women. And then I have different approaches with how I'll help you to feel stronger and more powerful. 
Mm-hmm. So some of that will be, but I can't lose weight or, and I'll be, you know, and I'll help with the mindset part. Some of that will be, you know, perimenopause and how that affects you when you're trying to be connected and all of those things. And so as long as I'm talking about empowering women, I, everything else is a doorway, a gateway to that. So you, okay. So you've got Nosh, then you also coach people on health related issues as well and coaching in general. Can you kind of talk through like how you got into coaching and how that all ties in together or do you see them as separate? So when, when I was doing Nosh, I had a few really famous like women come in um, like Nadia Swarovski and a few Rothschilds and a few other you know like like and then like more celebrity type a lot of them I'm thinking of who I have NDAs with that I can't talk about but a lot of really and they were like coming in with a problem and it turned out the problem wasn't that physical problem it was an emotional problem and I and what had happened in this place was that when my marriage was falling apart with with a vengeance the thing I (laughs) it's really funny thing happened I was walking through my library in my home because I had a library in my home pregnant with my youngest child. I had this beautiful library. It was just the nicest place. And um, a book fell on my head when I was trying to open, waiting for my husband to come home. And, and he, you had to be awake when he came home, very, very drunk. Otherwise, it was really dangerous. So I was trying to stay awake. And I was pregnant. And I was struggling to stay awake. So I'm like, I'm in the library. It's two in the morning. I can see him when he's coming in and, you know, whatever. And I was opening a door to get out a book to read. And, uh, you know, paper, books, those things. And this book fell on my head. And I was like, oh, and it was, (laughs) and this is absolutely true. It was Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And I was like, nah, I guess I'll read this. So I started to read that. And that culminated in me signing up around the frigging corner into a, a, a healing course the course to become a healer. So I went through this course to become a healer um, and it opened up all these kind of intuitiveness inside me. And so when these women started coming in and talking about having an issue with their weight, I would be able to kind of see blocks in their energetic systems. And I'd say, but, but, but can we talk about this? So if somebody comes in and, and I'm talking to them and then I would feel their liver kind of going, hello, hello hello and I'd be like in the beginning I would say do you have issues with your liver and they'd go no I'd be then eventually I worked out that the organs and the emotions were linked I thought I'd invented this it turned out the Chinese invented it six million years ago but I didn't know that so then I'd be like huh I'm like so how do you do with anger I'm never angry so um you know and then and it would, it, that's how it evolved. And so I ended up helping them emotionally, although they thought the problem was physical. So that's how it started the coaching. <clears throat> and I loved it. I was just like, oh my God, this is so much fun because I was helping these women feel incredibly powerful and take up spaces that they didn't know they should take or could take. And I had one woman who came in and the, her family business, she was the only girl in the, in the grandchildren and she was the only child that wasn't on the board. And I was just like, well, clearly you're sick, you're pissed off. And so it took us nine months to get her on the board. And I was like, this is so much fun. People pay me to do this shit. Oh my God, I'm loving it. So that was then great. And I finished training as a healer. Then I thought, well, I'm What a sign from the universe, like the book, the next door, the course. And now that's like all brought you towards this path that feels so aligned. 
right? And then the um um then more happened. Then oh, then I thought I'll just take a healing course, a, a health coaching course, just just because you know I should I should probably go off and qualify in something. So I then did a years long health coaching course. Um, and then I was, and then what happened is the universe started to send me cancer patients um, to come in for IV drips and for alkaline because it was a big thing about alkalinity and cancer. And we ended up getting three to four a week, Susanna, five a week. Um, and the first time it happened, this man rang me and, and I picked up the phone, which I wouldn't have done because I never, I hate my phone. I never, you know, I'm, I'm like the last person that's going to talk to you on the telephone. And I just, something made me pick it up. And there was a man crying down the phone saying, my mother's dying. My mother's dying. Can you help me? And I'm like, uh, yeah, but I, I don't know what he's like, but I was sent to you. Somebody gave me your name. You've got to do something. And I was like, okay, let's take a deep breath. And I helped her diet to change. We gave her high dose vitamin C. And I was like, shit, 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 shit. How fast do I learn about this? Back to the analytics and the law. So there was the Gershon Institute. There were all these amazing people doing things. And I was like, what can I replicate within the laws of our country? So I started doing that. And then followed the next two, three years of the most amazing part of this was that these people were coming in and they were all dying. Mm. They were all dying. They all had four weeks to live. They had six months to live. They just were dying. And they would walk in the door and they and we got the phone calls every time. Like, hi, so-and-so sent me, sent me to you. Um, I have cancer. And I'd be like, because they're all been sent home to die. They were literally all being sent home to die. And you have all these. And I, I think now we should have all had therapy because they would come in. We would get attached to them and we would do their food and their diets. And then then there was a place where the emotions needed help. And I was like, look, you've just got to be able to come in for an hour so I can talk to you. So it evolved into that. And we really helped to extend people's quality of life and life. You know, we had one. She said, my mother just wants to go back to church again. And so we had this. She, she lived another eight, nine months, and she went back to church, and then the woman would come in, and she's like, um, I, you, you would recognize patterns, it was the anger and the bitterness with cancer, and then this one woman came in, and I was like, so tell me about anger, who have you ever been angry with? Nobody. I'm like, all right, who have you ever been afraid of? Because anger and fear are so, the fear, anger is the empowerment of fear, um, and she was like, my father, and I was like, why were you afraid of your father and then she remembered this whole and her husband was in the same room with us because your loved ones don't want to let you go because you're going to die um and so you're having to coach in front of someone thinking oh my god and she got a memory back that she had blocked where she was having to take her two young siblings and put them upstairs and put them in a room with loud music because her parents were screaming and shouting at each other downstairs she was afraid her father was going to hurt her mother and that sheer sense of helplessness and so when you get that you learn to go to the core of a problem seriously fast. Mm. And so that was like about three years of, of that. And it just honed me in a way nothing else has, I think. I love that you did something that A, was so helpful to people at the end of their life. And it really helped you connect, not just with a health issue, but holistically what to who the core of that person was. And then help to resolve some of those issues and maybe even just either extend their life or just improve the last few days, weeks, months of their life with their family and their loved ones. Which yeah. is the other thing. Then her husband with this lady, I remember him saying, wow, you've never even told me that. She goes, I'd forgotten. Mm. 
And it was so interesting to watch them leave closer together than they were before. But I mean, I have to say, I don't want to sound like I knew what I was doing, to be fair. Um, it took a lot of trust that, that I wasn't going to hurt them. A lot of working research hours and hours and hours of work to make sure I didn't hurt these people that I loved more, that I knew more. So I, I don't want to make it sound glib because um, it was such a responsibility. So now when I get a normal person to coach, I'm just deliriously happy. <laughs> do I still do that? If they come in the door, yes. I'd never say no to to um, to someone like that, ever. In fact, my entire career has been that I've sort of never said no. Somebody will come and say, I need help. And I'll be like, oh, I don't know. Can I? Let me work it out. And that's literally, I think, been... Um, and then so that's why I started doing this kind of coaching because the beginning of lockdown, I rang 1,500 women and I'm like, how are you doing? And they're like, we hate our lives. We hate our bodies. We fucking hate everything else. And I was like, oh, oops. And so I was like, well, how do I make myself A, cheaper so more people can come, but B, into a community so women can support each other and do. And I, I, I wasn't a fan of the community thing. I'm a raging, high-functioning introvert. So I was like, I don't want to be responsible for this. I really don't want to. And I was like, shut the fuck up and woman up. So I created, that's how I created what I do today, which is I created Rewire. And I was like, here are the basic principles everybody needs to know to have a healthy, physical, mental, emotional life. And as long as these, these seven pillars are covered, everything else works. And so Rewire came off that. And then that's that's what I do now. I still do the celebrity thing because they so come. You, so most of your time now is coaching, right? So you do Rewired. Oh and, it's coaching and or speaking. What does that, maybe an obvious question, but what does that give to you as a person? Like what is coaching for you? I mean, I just love it. I love it. If you can help um, another woman, I, like I did it I was talking yesterday and this really young girl came up to me and she said you changed my life and I was like that's so amazing that you can you can help someone to see the power inside them to have I mean control. for me it was the same you've had such a big impact like I said at the beginning like you were the the reason I am where I am today so yeah. I mean, I, I think you're the reason, honestly, that you are where you are today, because you're the one that puts in the work. What I do is I will provide the, the pathways and identify them, right? So it is 100% you, but um, it is such a frigging joy. I mean, I, I literally just would happily do, I, I hopefully will happily do this for the rest of my life, because I love it so much. I just, it brings me immense joy to be able to make women understand the power and the strength. I'm a very powerful woman and I really like that about myself. And I want every woman to be able to step up and go, I'm a very powerful woman. I really like that about myself because I think the more powerful we are in our feminine in ourselves, the more powerful we enable men to be able to be. And it is a better world all the way around. Yeah, I love that. So I wanted to change track a little bit. So what not it's not that different actually but what what does mental health mean to you and how do you practice mental health I, I I don't know that I do I think I practice within which how I feel is just a really big part of it um what is it to you though maybe that's uh, I mean I I think to me it is the it's kind of like peace 
it's kind of like serenity. I actually have never identified this before because and I feel like a total twat saying things like peace and serenity. But but I think that's probably what I think it is. I think it's so incredibly important. But but, you know, for me, I, I find it very hard to separate them. I would not separate my physical or my mental health from each other and my emotional health, my spiritual health. I have just never I don't believe in it and I don't separate them. I don't think it's possible to be mentally healthy and physically ill. I don't think it's possible to be emotionally in a victim state and go, yeah, but like my, you know, my, my physical health is so beautiful. It, it's just not possible to me. So I don't understand that. So to you, it's just health. Yeah. Yeah. Balance. Do you, I know you're vegetarian um, and that's important to you in terms of your health. Um, what else do you, would you say like makes you healthy? When do you, you feel out give- of balance? Well, when I give things up, when I when I do things that don't feel right to me, like I don't understand food tracking, like I'd ra- literally rather shoot myself in the head. I absolutely friggin hate it. I feel like I'm in a jail. I have never eaten so much as when somebody told me I couldn't do something. At that stage, I'm like, oh, well, all bets are off. Bring the margarita. The other thing is that I don't like cheat days. I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm not your pet. And I'm just I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grown ass adult woman. So. I literally, I follow and I teach every client of mine to follow a kind of an 85% do all the right shit. Then the remaining 50% put in pasta, margaritas, vodka, you know, Aperol spritz and anything else that, and dessert, dessert is deeply important um, and sex. And and I think that you should put those things in and then the rest of the time, you, you know what I mean? So I think that you have to do the right things for your body the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And then the remainder of the time, the other things also feel right. So I don't feel when I'm having my margarita, I'm doing something bad or something that needs penance for. I'm just like, yay, this is the right thing right now. Ooh, okay, okay, tell me what's your morning routine like? Do you have a morning routine? I used to have a more rigid one. I don't anymore. I'm in a phase where it's a lot more fluid. Um, So my morning routine has been my whole life, practically as an adult, has been wake up, meditate um, and like five, 10 minutes and then go on. And and it has literally been like even I would have to wake up earlier and earlier to make time when the kids were little. And then there was a place where and then I would write. Then there was a place where I would wake up and I would journal and I would do. I think even when you were coaching with me, this is something I was saying. Morning pages. Morning pages. I that for a very long time. And then I stopped doing that at the end of 2019. And then I went to, meh. I mean, like my morning routine is to to wake up, um, make tea, (laughs) get back in bed. Um, And then I like to kind of watch something that makes me laugh or is entertaining. And then now more, I will watch like a morning kind of a, I'll do a stretching exercise and I'll run a prayer while I'm doing that or something um, or Marianne Williamson or a course in miracles. I'll do something a bit. It's, I kind of joke. It's kind of like the high spiritual stuff instead of the, you know, and then that kind of feels like it's my meditation, you know, and, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll just go on and do whatever I'm doing. So I, I there isn't a, a, a massive rigidity to it at this point in time. And that will change again. So do you just go with what feels right or good at that point? Exactly. Yeah, and then I'll look around and it turns exactly. out that this is the thing that's feeling good. Who knew? Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that. Are there any um, podcasts or books that you're reading at the moment that are kind of like connecting with you that you would recommend to people? Yeah, I'm really, um, I've gone back to Carolyn Mace because she's a medical intuitive. And so when I trained as a healer, I became a medical intuitive, but I didn't know that's what it was called till I listened to her. And then there was a bit where I couldn't listen to her because she has a very abrasive tone and I used to want to slap her. Um, Whereas now I'm back in that place because it's about the power that you hold. And I'm all about how much power you hold and how much power everyone should hold in themselves, especially every woman. And then um, I just started listening to her archetypes book again. I, I, I read. I am an inveterate, committed, dedicated bookworm. My idea of sheer heaven is to put me in a corner with a bowl of crisps or hula hoops and a, my Kindle. I am, I am, I am so committed to this that if I walked into an airport without a Kindle, I would walk because I'd forgotten it. I would walk and buy one. There, Kindle, and there. not a book. You're, you're. A I gave up. Book. In fact, the last library I had was that one in the house. I, although you'll see all these, I just read really fast and constant. I go through four books a week. Um, five books a week, sometimes six books a week. I'm like a re- I read, I grew up doing this, right? I had nothing else to do. So I'm a really fast reader. Um, apart from sometimes when I'm trying to remember something and then of course I'm not, but I'm a really fast reader. So I would end up just owning too many books. So now I Kindle because then I don't have to take physical books. Um, and I have thousands, like thousands. Of wow. Books. I love reading too, but I went from Kindle to, or not Kindle, but whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, like iPad. The Apple. Um, iPad, I guess. And, uh, and then I just wanted to get off my phone. So I wasn't always like looking at something electronic. So now I buy books. Yeah. But I, I love reading as well. Like it's my, like I love on a, on a, evening or a weekend and just get into bed and end with a book without a doubt but that that was the thing I had COVID um uh the beginning of this year end of January early February and I was so ill I couldn't read wow and I couldn't I had the worst long COVID this year that I've ever had and it has been of course as always transformative but I was so ill I couldn't read and I didn't know what to do with myself because I could the I couldn't catch the words my brain couldn't make sense of the, and I didn't realize the things I love, like I love jigsaw puzzles. I love reading. They took so much effort. I couldn't do them. And so for the first time, I've never watched TV. I only ever watch TV if I've been on TV and I go on and I critique myself and say, do this, don't do this, don't, it's not my idea of entertainment. I didn't grow up with TV, right? I grew up in the middle of frigging nowhere in the antediluvian dark ages. Um, and so I watched TV, like for a month, I think. I, I I was like, oh, that's what that we're thing. talking about. <laughs> I was like, I watch Bridgerton. I, I was like, oh, my God. You know, so it was, it's very interesting. I, I think I've always been out of lockstep with, with, with normal social mores. I mean, I stopped watching the news to the extent where I almost forgot that the World Cup was on. And now this is on record, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you, I, I, I actually never watched the news till Liz Truss came on. And then I remember watching it for that six weeks she was there and it destroyed my equilibrium so completely. It was terrible. I was like, how do you do this every day? And so I've gone back to not watching it. Yeah. So if you were to cast 
yourself back to your 18 year old self when you were finishing school and you were going to university like what would you tell your younger self if you could with the benefit of hindsight if anything what advice would you give have more sex a lot more sex good sex have more fun a lot more fun um go out with way better looking men than you know way better looking remember how good looking you are like you know really great deep superficial shit um there's not much point telling yourself anything you aren't going to listen so you know you're not going to listen it just isn't I have I have these this aging children and there's no point you just have to go through it all because you have to go through it all Mm -hmm. Um, but I never felt loved I only ever felt loved by my father because my relationship with my mother was not good clearly Um, my father absolutely loved me more than anything in the world and he really saved me but he was the only person and even he didn't love me enough to protect me from my mother And so I never felt loved. And so to be able to go back and tell the 18-year-old that you are worthy of being loved, that you are lovable, would have been transformative to the rest of my life. I love that. Yeah. I think so many teenagers and, you know, women in their 20s and men go through so much hardship because they don't feel loved. Yeah. And to love yourself you know to and also to love yourself not just be loved by other people when you learn to love yourself that's when you can really transform not only yourself but the life around you and lives around yes. you and and the way that's what i do when i'm coaching i just love you completely mm-hmm. you know and and i you i don't i don't know this because you're my client were my client and i'm not my client but I don't think anyone has ever come into coaching and thought, God, I just wish you gave a shit about me. <laughs> you know, I don't think that even is ever for a second in doubt. Yeah. And I think that I give what I didn't have and that I didn't know that, but that's what I wanted. I wanted everyone to be able to have someone that believed in them to the nth degree and saw the best version of them all the time. That's not always the most comfortable thing, but it's some on some level deeply comforting. Mm. you know and intelligent women just never feel safe because it's not society does not want us to feel safe we are not really convenient on many levels and I love intelligent women and I want them to feel safe so I I'm very happy to be the safe harbor that I didn't have you know and that's your gift maybe back to them with what you do with coaching I hope so yeah so I want to ask one of my favorite questions and which also ties back to our first encounter, which is what is success to you? I'm really working on this at the moment because there are places where I just don't feel successful. Um, and then I look around and I'm like, really? How stupid are you? And I've had to identify the difference between having impact and have and being successful. And I don't want to sound like an ass. Um, or an arrogant ass, because I had a lot of impact in health. And I was privileged enough to be in a position where I could have massive impact, like the whole of the home delivery market that I started, I started cold press juices, I brought IV drips to this country, things that people don't even understand that I did that I know I did, and I'm grateful I did, you know. So that's a lot of impact, but I don't always feel successful. 
And so I've been struggling with that a little bit. And I'm kind of like, well, what would it be? Is it that that makes you feel successful? You know, where do you have to, because every time I pivot, then I have a different definition of success. And so. So it evolves over time. Constantly. And I'm so ambitious. You know, I, I, I just really miss having a private plane. What can I tell you? I think probably when I'm getting on my own private plane, I'll feel successful again. <laughs> so you've got different. So what would you say is the definition of success then for you? Is it an internal thing or external or both? I never think about my success internally. I, it's not something I think about. I, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I just actually don't think it that way. I don't know why. Maybe I should. Maybe I'd be better if I did. But I, I don't think of it. I don't think about whether I'm successful or not. It never occurs to me. And that's, I don't know if that's a failing or a bonus because I've never thought of it. But I, I internally have no version of whether I'm successful or not. I internally wake up and I'm like, do I enjoy this? Is this what I want to do? Am I in a place where this is, you know, I, I, I question my values all the time. And I always laugh and I say I have no morals, but a lot of principles, you know. Um, morals feel so artificial, I don't understand them, but but mm-hmm. principles, you know. So I, I have my principles and my values, I check in on them daily, all the time before I do anything. It's my first action. Somebody will go, will you? And my first thing will be, I don't know, will I? And then so it'll... Like if it's aligned to your values? I guess. Yeah. I just, it's literally, will I? It's a question I ask myself all the time. So if somebody's like um, Netflix, I had a conversation with Netflix to do something. And, you know, that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And I'm just like, I really, really just want to say yes to this. And I couldn't. And it annoyed the shit out of me because I really, it just wouldn't, I would never do that. Which I think is quite sad really honestly so I want to tell it wasn't aligned to one of your values apparently I just couldn't so therefore it wasn't which annoys me shitless because I would have really want to do that Um, but I didn't want to do it because I just wouldn't have been me and so that's the only thing I could so that's why I don't know how to answer am I successful or am I not because I don't it's just not a judgment I have Mm. about myself so thank you for that, because I never knew that. My judgment of myself is never based on success. My judgment of myself is based on, am I am I all kind of like in line? Oh, yeah, great. We're all good. All right. Let's mm. carry on type thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, the, the whole purpose of this podcast is to um, have a platform for different, every, for individuals to tell their story of, success but to define what success is to you and there is no one definition it's not a box right and so it's just interesting to hear from you that success is not necessarily a focal point or a thing it's just but let's be clear I'm humongously ambitious so yeah. I, I'm, I'm definitely not Mother Teresa in a corner you know oming and chanting waiting for the heavens to give me manna that that's definitely not who I am I am absolutely ambitious to all get out, but it is, I don't think it's how I define myself. I think what I'm saying is that success is constantly a measure of, am I being true to what I, who I am? Yeah. I mean, it's, I remember when I first met you, like to me at that point, it was like wanting to have a boyfriend, (laughs) you know, that was, that was to me like success and stability 
And if I look now, fast forward, it's such a different story of what I view success. To me, it's actually inner peace and happiness and everything else, you know, around that, you know, being, and then it's funny because I, the second question I was going to ask, which is my like kind of second favorite question is around values. And if I'm in alignment with my values, then I feel happy and successful. Yeah. And I'm very clear about my values, but those change all the time as well. They, sorry, mine pivot. Yeah. They are, I, they, they I, I don't values. know if they do. I don't know if my values change. I think my values are fairly constant, mm. which is why I can comfortably apply them to anything yeah. because they're, they're com- constant. The edges may warp and woof as mm. they change. So the edges probably shape a little different when different opportunities and exposures come but your values kind of are your values because to me that's who you are you know um yeah but i like how you said it i agree completely that's a really great way of saying it so in closing what advice would you have for someone that is struggling with clarity and purpose in life that is just a bit lost Honestly, the easiest thing to do, other than hiring me as a coach, when you're struggling with clarity and purpose, the easiest thing to do is to start saying no to things. I I call this fucking people write books on how to say yes. I'm like, really start saying no. Literally, let's write a book on how to say no. Boundaries. Saying, well, yeah, but even boundaries is something I've come away from recently because the things that I'm happy to say no to, I don't need a boundary for. I just say no. I only need boundaries in places where I'm not sure I would say no. And therefore, I need a boundary to protect me. But if I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to make my no a yes because it's a no, you know. So I think for people who are struggling with clarity, say no. Say no a lot more. And that's the core of the success markers as well. The success markers, if you remember, Well, what I used to tell people, don't go for goals. Your success markers are the things that if they don't work, will discombobulate you. Make sure those things work all the time. And then you know you're on the route for success because you won't get derailed. And to me, that's what no is. You know, just keep saying no quite a lot, constantly to the things you want to say no to. And then everything else is your yes. And when you're afraid to say yes, because you don't know why you're saying yes, it's much easier to say no. I love that. I love that. Something I definitely want need to practice more. Yeah, because you'll do something you don't want to do. Actually, just checking in with how you feel. Like, and again, is that in alignment with who you are and your values and intuition? Yeah, just say no a lot. (laughs) It's a really effective way of getting to where you want to go because no provides a journey as much as yes does. Um, but I, I don't like, I don't think women should say yes. I don't think books are written about for us. Just say yes. Like, shut well, up. Well, we always say yes. You know We're what I mean? People what kind pleasers. of stupid shit is that to tell to a woman? Don't, yeah. don't say, say no. I love this. I love the idea of like writing down all of the, almost like journaling all of the things you say no to, or you want to say no to, and then just taking action. It's a form of whittling. Yeah. Almost because instead of taking you, you're almost taking away something and then it, it shines up the bit who you, of who you really are underneath it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gita. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. Thanks for listening to On Being You. 
I hope you liked this episode and I would love to hear your comments below and hit subscribe for future episodes. Thank you.